Okay, Joshua 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent Jobab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nephophdor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all of these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Miss and Misrethphoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mespah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at the time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these, those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of the cities and the livestock, the people of Israel, took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any one, any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards the air as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in the battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim, from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, 
from Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Wow. Thank you, honey. Appreciate it. Again, again, you never applaud for me when I read the scripture. Wow, man. And what kind of Mother's Day passage is that, by the way? Like, why'd you pick that one, honey? Of course, I'm kidding. Um, We're in the middle of a series in the book of Joshua, and that's just where we are in the text. Uh, One through five uh, of Joshua is talking about entering the land. Six through 12 is about the conquest of the land. So that's just kind of where we are today um, in the text here. Um, What just happened? (laughs) I'm talking about the reading of chapter 11 and that narrative. What just happened? That that has to arrest our attention this morning. I think if the next Bible-inspired movie um, was about Joshua chapter 11 and Israel taking the promised land, if it stayed true to biblical account, you would not let your children watch this. Uh, If you're an adult, you, you might even turn the channel. It is full of grit Guts, swords, slaughter, burning of chariots, citizens, and cities to total destruction. It has more action than the most action-packed movie that you've ever seen. It has more horror than the most horrible horror movie than you've ever seen. But at the same time, it has... And it is a great story of hope for good promises. And it has the best ending than any feel-good movie that you've ever watched. All of this, of course, depends on what side that you're on. Today in chapter 11, let me tell you what we're going to see. As Israel is... Engaged in battle, all right? They are soldiers in God's army. And they're in a long, hard battle that's seemingly intensifying by each battle. As they're in these things, we're going to see five things that they do here. Number one, we're going to see how they, they know their enemy. Number two, we're going to see them, how they trust God's sovereignty Number three, we're going to see them fight the fight. Number four, we're going to see them obey the commands of the commander. And then the fifth thing is, after they do all of those things and God executes judgment on the enemies, we're going to see them enter into rest. This story beckons me and you. It beckons us this morning to ponder it, to look at this story in awe, to embrace the symbolism that is here, to learn principles 
and strategies for the battle that we're in today and connect this scene of hope and ending to the very ending of our existence as followers of Jesus. You know, I love to tell you up top why this matters to you. Because you read a story like that, what does that have to do with me? Like, I, I got some stuff going on in my life right now. It's horrible right now. Things are really hard. I, I don't know where I'm going. There's hell in my house. I, I don't even know where, where to begin. This is, feels like a really hard battle. How does that story apply to my life today? Well, I hope I can help you see that today we are two soldiers in God's army. We're all enlisted. No one can opt out. This battle is hard. It is long. But if we can learn to know our enemy, to trust in God's sovereignty, to engage the fight, to obey the commands of the commander, we too can enter into rest in our eternal promised land. So let's look at these five things here in the text. The first one I want us to look at is to know your enemy. Know your enemy. Now, last week in chapter 10, if you were here, if you weren't, you can check up. There was a king of Jerusalem. His name was Adonai Zedek. And he had seen all of the victories of Israel. And instead of submitting to God, he decides to gather a coalition of the southern Canaanite armies and kingdoms and alliance formed against the people of God, against Gibeon and all these things. And so this king goes against them. But then Joshua responds to Gibeon's defense because they had made covenant with them. And they get entrenched in this battle. Israel, they were outnumbered, outmanned, but God showed up in a big way in the middle of, of the battle. He made it rain hail from heaven. It came down so big that it crushed the skulls of all of the armies, killing all of them. And then after Joshua prayed a big prayer because he believed in a big God, the sun stood still, which allowed daylight to remain in the land so that Israel could finish off the enemies and finish the battle. Now, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 Israel's victories have gone viral. And so everybody's hearing about Israel and Israel's God and all their things. Now you would think that the northern armies, after hearing what just happened, that they wouldn't want any part of fighting Israel and fighting Israel's God. You'd think that. But that's not the case. We are introduced to a man named Jabin, who's the king of Hazor. And instead of throwing up the white flag, he gathers a larger coalition with the surrounding northern Canaanite armies to come against the people of Israel. Now, these enemies were normally enemies of each other. I think this is just like really what happened in chapter 10. But often the enemy of your enemy becomes your friend. So they unite against the people of God. And so... I think it's important to see here, as we're knowing the enemy, Joshua could have given a very general account of the enemy here. He could have just said, northern army, northern Canaanites, they're all coming against God. But he, he doesn't do a general description. He does a very personal, in-detailed 
description of the enemy, including their names. He spends a lot of ink listing out all of the names, all of the names that Callie read today. Why is there so much detail and repetition about these people who are enemies of God? Here's a couple of reasons why I think that there's so much detail. Number one, I think these names are listed because the Bible is trying to let us know that these are real cities, real kings, real kingdoms, real places, a real time in human history. And this is not just a listing of kings and kingdoms in the land of Oz. We have a historically rooted faith. I think that's the first reason he gives us the list in detail. But I think the second reason is a little bit more important. I think the reason that we give this personal account is because sin is never general to God. It's always personal to God. He lists this ledger of all his enemies because he knows them all by name. The same God today For those who reject Jesus Christ, it's not just this general rejection. All these people reject me. No, he knows every single person who's his enemy. He knows them by name. Sin is very personal to God. Now, as he's listing out the enemy here, he assembles them all together and says, and he describes them as a great horde. There were so many enemies They outnumbered the sand on the seashore. In other words, immeasurable, innumerable. That's how many enemies were encamped against them. They also had sophisticated weaponry. We're told in the text that they had chariots and horses. This is a, doesn't sound like a lot to us today, but in this day, this was a very sophisticated weaponry and gave them a great advantage over the Israelites. Josephus, who was a secular Jewish historian, he estimated that the army was about 300,000 and they had about 30,000 chariots. So this is a very powerful, sophisticated enemy and sophisticated weaponry that Israel was up against. Later in the text, we're told about a group called the Anakim, not Anakin for you Skywalker nerds and Star Wars people. But Anakim, these were giants. They were really big. So we're getting this picture. Joshua 1 through 5 is telling us about the enemy. To know the enemy. Know the enemy, the weapons, the strategies, the schemes, so that they could be better equipped in the battle. Now here's our takeaway. We too, as I said, are soldiers in God's army And we too must know our enemy. We have to know who it is. And we've said this on repeat throughout this study in Joshua that our enemy is not physical. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not POTUS and SCOTUS and LIBS and far leftists. That's not who our enemy is. Our enemy is the Ephesians 6 prince of darkness. Satan himself. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle. Satan is, of course, our enemy. And he is not just a single enemy. He has a great horde of disciples out there who also encamp against us. And Satan and his horde, they have great sophisticated weaponry. 
Here's what their chariots and horses look like. These are the these are the, the places and the things that Satan and his enemies attack the people of God. Number one, he attacks the family unit. He comes right into the homes, and if he could just get into that marriage and just tear it apart, cause divorce, single parenthood. And if he could just get in there and cause some confusion between mom and dad and their roles, he just loves to destroy the family unit. He is the great distractor. He loves to take Christians' minds off of Christ and his church and to get them so busy in life with jobs and careers, working, trying to earn a dollar, making sure that our kids go to all the games and leagues and travel sports. He loves to distract us from the things of God. It's one of his enemies or one of his strategies here. Satan loves to lure us into living in a virtual world. That's a scheme of the devil. Now, let me, let me say something. I'm not saying that virtual tools are the devil. <laughs> I believe that those are, can be used for a lot of great things. I, I take a lot of advantage of some of those virtual things that we can have in our own homes, like watching a movie, getting our groceries delivered at home, and uh, uh, meals delivered at home. There's a lot of comforts that come with things in your home in the virtual world. But what happens is Satan, he twists that and wants to create a culture of isolation. When you have a culture of isolation, you have death. He loves to scatter the people of God. He loves to separate us on Sunday. He loves it when people worship at the first Mattress Church of Smyrna. Because he knows when we come together, we are a force to be reckoned with. He is declaring mental warfare on our children. He loves to get in there and twist up this idea of genders, sexuality, indoctrinate our children. It's a scheme of the devil. It's not a philosophy of the culture. It's a strategy. It's a horse. It's a chariot. Let me tell you what else I've seen lately that is the enemy. Man, he is flexing on this and people are getting taken out left and right. He loves to get the people of God politically polarized. If he can get Christians politically polarized, then he can get them spiritually paralyzed. When he can get the Christian worshiping at the altar of politics, they're out of the game. You know who those people are, right? They say God and country, but they really mean his country. And they are more concerned with converting the country than converting their neighbor. They're more concerned about their mission field being on Twitter and Facebook 
than doing mission work in their own backyards. These these individuals, of course, are missing the point. The world is not divided into libs and conservatives. This is a spiritual battle. I think what I've seen, I've seen people who genuinely love the Lord over the past few years become so politically polarized. They turn into the most hateful and judgmental Christians I've ever known. Why? Because that is a strategy of the devil. We must be aware of our enemy and his strategies. It doesn't mean that we don't speak about biblical issues that may have political aftershocks. You know what I mean? I'm talking about like pro-life, gender things. These aren't political things. These are biblical things. So we do want to talk about those things. Don't shy away from those things. But we have to understand who our enemy is. Man, there's some other things I think I see the enemy doing in his warfare is expressive individualism. Be you, do you, you define you, it's your own truth, it's your own reality, what's true for you, whatever. That's expressive individualism, it's a scheme of the devil. Another one that seems to be very prevalent today is how Satan is assaulting biblical womanhood. There's all this confusion right now about what is a woman. Why? Why do you think that's the case? Do you think it's because man and woman has just evolved into this new enlightened state of education? Oh, we've discovered a new thing. Anyone can be a woman. No, it's a scheme of the devil to confuse what a woman is. And people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. And I get upset because it's assault on women in this church. Man is not woman. Woman is woman. And our young ladies in our church, I want them to know who God has made them. And the young men, I want them to know who God has made them. But this is also a scheme of the devil. And why is, I think about why Satan is so dead set on assaulting women. Isn't he the great abuser of women? Didn't he abuse Eve in the garden? Of course he did. And when he couldn't do that, and the Lord comes in and promises that the Messiah is going to crush his head and it's going to come through the womb of a virgin, a woman, he's dead set against assaulting all women. He hates women. And I get really passionate when women are assaulted by the enemy. All of these things, of course, are not the enemy. They are the weapons of the enemy. And we have got to be people who know who we are fighting or we'll end up fighting the wrong person, the wrong people, right? Now, I think about the enemy and we see, and we build up, he's powerful, he's got a lot of influence, the sophisticated weaponry, seemingly outnumbered, but I pause here in this moment to remember that the greatest enemy of the Israelites wasn't the Canaanites, it was their sin, it was Satan. Our greatest enemy is not 
those in our culture around us, our greatest enemy is inside of us. It is sin and praise be to God that Jesus Christ has already defeated our greatest enemy. So yes, he has some limited power and authority, but he has been defeated. He is, that's why he, he is described as this snake with his head cut off. He's just flopping around trying to bite everybody he can to inflict as much pain possible because he knows he has been defeated. Know our enemy, church. The second piece is this. Trust God's sovereignty. A lot of these things you, you may be like, man, we've heard all this stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> God's very repetitive on things that matter. So it, it, here's the point. This battle looked very overwhelming for Israel, right? They're outnumbered, outweaponed. They've got giants and the Anakim they're going to fight. So this looked very doubtful. This is the story of David versus Goliath before there was David versus Goliath. They could have tapped out, no chance of winning the war, but yet they engaged the fight and they had great confidence. Why? Because they trusted in God's sovereignty. That's why. This, was, this battle was not theirs. This battle was the Lord's. Now let's look at the sovereignty of God. Joshua eleven twenty. We read this a couple of weeks ago. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua wants us to know that the enemy wasn't sneaking up on Israel. It wasn't that they had this master blindside planned against Israel. Israel, he's reminding us here that they were doing exactly what God had ordained for them to do. He hardened their hearts so that they would come against the people of Israel so that God could use Israel to inflict justice upon the Canaanites. Also important to remember, they weren't coming as pre-programmed puppets Without personal guilt, they were fully responsible for their evil and rebellion. But at the same time, they were on the Lord's leash. This is that, again, mystery interplay of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But because God's battle, this is his battle, and he's orchestrating this, this is why he could encourage Joshua in verse 6 with this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. On repeat in this book, God has told Joshua and Israel, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. The reason he's telling them do not fear because they fear. right? You don't tell people who are confident to not fear. They struggle with fear like you and I struggle with fear. But over and over again, he says, do not fear, do not fear. I will give them over to you. All, all you need to do, Israel, is hamstring their horses and burn the chariots. Now, why this command from God here? First of all, what is that? 
hamstringing horses was cutting the leg of a horse. It's the equivalent of the Achilles tendon in the human body, but they cut that of a horse, rendering it ineffective for fighting, but still effective for farming. So it ceased to be usable in the act of war anymore. Can't do it. Hamstring the horses. Do that. But also burn the chariots. Chariots gave the Canaanites a great advantage over the Israelites. But he says, just, just burn them. Burn them to the ground. Why did God command this? I would think if I'm in this battle and I'm Joshua, I think I might be tempted to try to counsel the Lord right here. <laughs> Hold on. Wait, you sure? Horses and the chariots, you, we're going to win. God, can't we just take the plunder? Can't we take the, the horses and the chariots? We don't really have a lot of weapons. We've got some stones and fists. And one time we use our voices to knock a wall down. We don't have a lot of weapons here. Can we take the chariots? Can we take the horse? Y- yeah, God. Why is it that God demanded them to burn the chariots and cut the horse's legs? Here's why. Because God was teaching them to trust in him and not in human resources. Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Church, we don't trust in chariots and horses. We also don't trust in humans or princes and kings. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. I think our, our, our application here, let me see where application here, how we get away from this. Again, we, we seemingly are outnumbered, maybe outwitted, outweaponed. All of these things are surrounding us, causing us to doubt. We must remember to trust God's sovereignty. Now, when it comes to trusting God's sovereignty, I think everybody wants God to be sovereign when they have a situation that's out of their control. Cancer. Oh, God, this is totally out of my control. God, can you take away this cancer? God, give me this job. It's not going good. Give me a wife. Give me a husband. We're just lifting up these things. and we're, we're, we, we love God's sovereignty when it comes to things that are beyond our control. We love that, but... Sometimes people push back on the sovereignty of God and fear the sovereignty of God because it threatens their power, their rights, and their control. Some fear God's sovereignty because they can't explain why a good God would allow bad things to happen to good people. Some fear God's sovereignty will demotivate people from following God. If God's already determined the outcome, why do we go? Why do we fight in sharing the gospel to all the nations? Why do we go? Why do we give? Why are we here today if God's already determined the outcome, right? This is a form of rebellion against God's sovereignty. The reason that we go is because he told us to. The reason we fight is because he tells us to fight. Isn't that what Joshua did? Joshua, great theology, 
He trusts God's sovereignty, right? But does Joshua sit back and presume on the sovereignty of God? He's already promised victory. Let's just sit on the sideline and watch the whole thing go down. No, he fights. He engages the fight. God's sovereignty never leaves us of our responsibility. And that does lead into the next point. We fight the fight. We have to engage the fight. Let's look at this point here. And I want to show you how Joshua and Israel weren't sideline sitters watching God do all of this. Now, they didn't watch God's sovereignty. They didn't presume on his sovereignty. And they didn't even wait for the enemy to attack and just practice defensive measures. If you look back in the book of Joshua, including right here, Joshua goes on the offense. He attacks the enemy before the enemy attacks. It's a great lesson for us to learn Right there, we cannot sit back and passively watch God presuming on his sovereignty or watching the enemy and then reacting to what the enemy does. We must fight and go on the offensive. Think about it this way in regards to going on the offensive. If you have a small child and you don't start to teach them from a very early age about what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage means, and all these things, if you don't do that, and you allow the enemy to attack your child's mind in the third grade bathroom at the school, well, now you're playing defense. And when you're playing defense, you're already behind in the fight. Parents, start to train up. Go on the offense with your children from day one. Teach them the things of God. Go on the offense before we have to play defense. The church has a role to play in this fight. Now, I I think if we're not careful, a lot of times as Christians, we can get caught up in this idea that Jesus is this 70s, feather-haired peace freak who just kind of wants to love the world and sprinkle love dust everybody. Can't we all just get along? That is not what he's called us to do. We have to fight the fight. We have to engage this fight. We're the church. We have to assemble. The church acts as a barracks to train up and equip the people for the battlefield that we go out into, that's the purpose of the church. Listen to what Josh Howerton says about this. I love this quote. He says this about the church. The role of the church is to be an immune system to fight off sinful diseases of culture. And if the immune system refuses to work, then any disease can kill the body. The role of this church is to be an immune system in a satanic and diseased culture to fight against lies, deception. If it does not, then any disease can kill the body. How do we fight? That's the next question. Well, number one, 
We don't fight with the weapons of the world. We don't fight with swords and chariots and horses. We don't charge the White House in physical form. That's not what the warfare that we enter into. We fight a spiritual battle with spiritual warfare. So we don't fight like the world fights. You know how the world fights? Facebook and Twitter. Words. The turf of Twitter. Attack people on social media because they think differently and we act like Dobermans with doctrine or pit bulls for the gospel, just biting people's heads off because we know the truth. That's not how we fight. And we enter into those arenas and those spaces with truth and with grace. And if you're someone who's fighting on the turf of social media, listen, if your driving passion is someone's wrong on the internet, your life is probably out of balance. We don't fight like the world. We fight spiritual ways. We fight like this. We fight by putting on the armor of God. We fight by hearing God's word to us, by speaking our words to God through prayer. We fight by Fighting biblical illiteracy. We fight by knowing our Bibles, being Christians with Christian minds. We fight by getting in discipleship groups and knowing the word of God. We fight by getting our kids signed up for things like VBS and camp and avoiding or punting or scooting off camps and baseball and cheer and band. That's how we fight against the devil in his warfare. But the best weapon I believe in the fight is this. It's to obey God's commands. I think this is the best thing that Joshua did and really has done in every single battle. The best weapon is to obey God. Now look here in 1115. Again, we're told, it says this, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The word commanded here is mentioned five times in chapter 11, and it just simply tells us that Joshua followed every single command of the Lord, to the detailed, to the instruction, and it said that he left nothing undone. Even when the commands seemed outrageous, remember all the commands he had given across the Jordan and all those things in Jericho, the walls... Just even when it didn't make sense, every time that Joshua obeyed God's commands, victory. Every time that Joshua and Israel disobeyed, defeat. There is this inseparable connection that Joshua is making here between faith and obedience. Obedience is the fruit of faith. My point is that you can't just pray a prayer and think you're in. Obedience to the commands of God is the fruit of faith. They cannot be separated. Where in your life right now are you not obeying God? Number one, when I read Joshua left nothing undone that the Lord commanded to Moses. You know what that makes me think of? 
Well, first of all, it tells me, oh, I've left a lot undone when I follow the commands of God. I don't know about you. Oh, I've left a lot undone. I go there first, and then I go to Jesus, the greater Joshua, who left nothing undone of all the commands of God. He fulfilled every single one of the commands of God. All of them. And because I believe in Jesus, the same can now be said of me. Now, what do I do? What's the appropriate response when I know that Jesus has done that on my behalf? Well, it should be to obey more. It shouldn't be to say, well, he's done it for me. Let me just cruise on into heaven. No, it makes me want to obey more. It wants for me the same thing to be said about me that I've left nothing undone when it comes to the commands of God. Is there any area of your life today that you know that you are either walking in partial obedience, deliberate disobedience, and you're just saying no to the commands of God? Either by things of omission or commission. Read the scripture, pray to God. Share the gospel, give, tithe, serve, get in community, all these commands of God to do, and then there's the commands of don't do, don't, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't get drunk, don't get high, I could go on and on and on. Very simple commands of God. Are you obeying the simple commands of God? Start somewhere. Start somewhere. I think sometimes that we, we get this idea that there's so many commands in here, I just don't know what to do. I get, there's this paralysis by analysis that happens. I don't know where to start. Start with one. Start with one today that you know he's told you to do and you're just not doing. If you obey nothing until you can obey everything, you will be useless in the fight. Start somewhere today and get a, get a blue card and just say, yes, say yes to God today. And watch what happens in your life when you obey the commands of God. We're seeing a pattern here. They, they knew their enemy. They trusted the sovereignty of God. They fought the fight. They obeyed God. And then they did all those things. They engaged the fight so that this great promise at the end, they engaged the fight so that they could enter into the rest. The rest in the land. Now let's look at this, this last piece here, because this is the, the pinnacle for the Christian. We love this. Joshua eleven twenty three. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses And Joshua gave it for inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. We tend to read this and think that Israel took the promised land in a very short amount of time. Just because it happens over the course of a couple of chapters. But did you know that it actually took them more like seven years to take the promised land? That's why verse 18 said that Joshua made war a long time with those kings. What's the point? 
The point was this was a long, hard battle. It wasn't fought in a day. It wasn't fought in a week, a year, two years, several years. A long, long, hard battle, fighting, fighting, fighting. No rest, no peace. They only knew warfare. Feels a lot like us today. But it says here at the very end, As God executes the judgment on the enemies, they get the reward for all of their faithfulness. They get the reward because they knew their enemy, they trusted God's sovereignty, they obeyed the commands, they fought the fight, they got the reward. And the reward was they got the land and they got rest in the land. The story is not just a slice of history. This is a picture of the future when Jesus Christ returns to execute judgment on all of his enemies and we get invited into our eternal rest in our eternal promised land. Hebrews 4, 8 through 11 looks back on the story of Joshua. Look at what it says here. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews here is telling us that Israel entering into the promised land and experience rest wasn't the final rest and was not the final reality. That was just simply pointing to Jesus returning, conquering enemies, and us being entered into our eternal rest. And we will, if we fight the good fight faithfully, If we engage in the fight, we too will enter into the rest. That's our hope, church. That God has already conquered the enemy. He's already given us victory. We just have to hang in there, keep fighting, not lose hope. Because we know we're going to eventually enter into rest. But that's a future promise, right? Like, I need something for today. I need need to get through week by week. Glad you say that because God has instituted something very good in the order of our life to give us the reminder that we're one day going to have rest. You know what that is? It's called the Sabbath. It's called what you're doing here today, corporately gathering with the church of God. This, This is just a foretaste or an appetizer of the rest that we will experience in future glory. And so every time we come together, it's not just going to church to do religious things. No, we're here to remember that our great God has promised us the land. He has promised us a land, a rest from warfare. There will be no more Warfare, there'll be work, but there will not be warfare. No sin, no Satan, no enemies, no great horde facing us. 
one day in future glory. And that is something we must hang on to. We will enter into this rest. Church, I'm going to wrap this up by kind of stepping back from chapter 11 and getting this larger story here. I want to let you know today, this story, how you read it, this story could either be good news or it could be bad news. Let's just, let's be real. Let's look at the text. It's not good news for everybody, right? Canaanites aren't resting. The Israelites are. So this has two distinctively different responses. If you're on the side of the Canaanites, this is horrible. The judgment was horrific, a merciless slaughter. This is the kind of story that puts the church in a defensive position. Your God is a murderer. Why is, why is the loving God that you worship so Thanos-like? Why would you worship a God like this? The Canaanites, this is a little overboard. Surely they weren't that bad. That shows you that you don't understand the wickedness of the heart of humans. Do you know what the Canaanites were doing? They were morally and sexually perverse, practicing some of the most horrific things from bestiality. And oh, by the way, they were taking small children and throwing them into a fire to sacrifice them. Oh, they were horrible. But the greatest offense that the Canaanites had wasn't that it wasn't what they were doing. It wasn't their acts that made them such enemies of God and victims of total destruction. The reason that they faced total destruction is because they refused to turn to the one true God who would offer grace for sinners. Remember what Rahab did? She turned, Canaanite, she was saved. So that's all they had to do. For 400 years, they said no to God. And he was patient. And all they had to do was turn to the one true God. And they didn't do it. They are completely deserving of the destruction. There was a day that the Canaanites understood that God's mercy would be eclipsed by God's judgment. And they faced it. There is a lesson, of course, here for us that invites us in to consider something. We, too, are all Canaanites by birth and by nature. I, I, for 33 years of my life, I was the king of Jabin. That's me. Assaulting God, planning things against the people of God. You and I are all deserving of the same destruction that we've just watched in this passage. And there's nothing that we can do to change that on our own power. 
you can't take the Lord's Supper enough to erase the sin that you've committed against the holy God. You can't get baptized enough times. We could baptize you every Sunday for the rest of your life, and it still will not wash away the sins that you've committed against the holy God. You can't join enough churches, attend enough gatherings on Sunday to change your position against the holy God. But you can do one thing. God has made a way for us to be in the presence of God and not be destroyed by the presence of God. One way, believing in Christ's life, Christ's cross, and Christ's resurrection. It's the only way, the good, good gospel of the life and death and resurrection. Jesus, the mercy offering for all of us who turn to Jesus, who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who give Jesus our lives, we become the children of God who are promised to one day enter into a land of rest. That gives me hope. If you're here today and you've heard anything that doesn't give you hope and you're just down, 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 but you want to know more about Christ, the only way that you will not be a victim like the Canaanites. Man, would you come and talk to us today? We'd love to talk with you. You can take a blue card, check a box on there. You can uh, come up in just a minute. I think I'm, I'm going to come up front. There might be another, uh, either a staff member in the room or a, a deacon that might stand up in the back. We want to talk with you about Christ. Ask a, a question about something you heard today. We want you to know the peace and the rest that God has promised to those who are in Jesus Christ. And I love you guys. Let me pray, and then we're going to sit over this for just a few minutes, and, and then we'll stand and worship. God, we, you have our attention. You have our thoughts. The sobering story causes us to pause in our normal, day-to-day, ordinary lives to consider where we are in Christ. God, I pray that you do a work in here today of beautiful conviction in the hearts of your people, causing us to trust you more, to obey you more, to enter and to gauge the fight so that one day we can enter into your rest. We love you. And we want you in Jesus' name.